Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we, we pray that as we consider it today that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. You would teach us things that we need to know and apply these things to our hearts so that uh, your word will have its way with us, uh, that you would cause us to desire to live lives of fruitful obedience for, for the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. So please speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now my dad told me uh, about my mum's aunt, Auntie Vera, uh, and my grandfather had become a Christian but Auntie Vera decided for the duration of her life that she would reject the faith. He, um, my grandfather tried to explain what he'd come to believe and she let it be known she was not interested. And my dad said that if ever there was a conversation that started to look like it was getting serious, Auntie Vera would stop that by saying, it doesn't bear thinking about. And in her very precise English way, that was a way of saying, let's stop talking about it. I am not interested. I don't want to hear any more. It was a well-mannered way of just putting a stop to it it doesn't bear thinking about she said well you know there's a lot of things that don't bear thinking about that we need to think about uh, it would be foolish if we went through life without thinking about some of the really big things and here's the thing this reading that we've had today uh, full of strange names we'll get to those in a moment uh, presents to us in an incident that happened a long time ago a choice that we face every day Will we choose idols or will we choose Jesus? That's what this boils down to. And so we're continuing in our series looking at the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts tells what was happening uh, after Jesus returned to heaven, where we believe he still is living and he's reigning. Uh, What's Jesus doing now? Well, he's reigning, uh, and amongst other things, he's praying for us. But he's reigning and he will return one day. But he's left his mission in the hands of people Uh, well he was a person but he's but the holy spirit inspires the people of jesus to take his message to the ends of the earth we've seen the first part of the book of acts is centered on jerusalem and the identity of peter we're now moving into a next part of the book of acts where the focus shifts to the mission to the ends of the earth and the focus centers on paul uh, on paul the great apostle and uh Twice in this reading that we've had today, you'll notice, if you look at it, please keep it open in front of you, but twice uh, Paul and Barnabas are referred to as apostles. Now that's significant because Peter and James and John and all those ones that followed Jesus around, they were called apostles. These two weren't members of the Twelve and yet they're called apostles. That's significant. Anyway, we're in what we call Paul's first missionary journey where the starting point was Antioch. There's two Antiochs on the map. There's Antioch in Syria. They went from Paul and Barnabas went from uh, Antioch in Syria to Salamis to, in, into Cyprus, and then they took a boat across to that region called Asia Minor. That's what the Romans used to call it because the Romans were in charge. They landed at Perga. Um, John Mark, otherwise known as Mark, he left them there. Uh, we're going to get back to John Mark in a few weeks, but they travelled up to Antioch. And so Greg was speaking about Antioch last week and they ran into real trouble there. And so the trouble was so severe that they had to leave. Well, they didn't quit because that's not Paul's nature. And we're going to see that again today. They were faced with life-threatening, a life-threatening situation, but they didn't quit. They went elsewhere. And so they took the word to Iconium. Now, these place names, it's unlikely that many of us will ever go there. And in fact, some of these places are now just dots on the map. There's nothing there but a hill, a mound. 
But the fact is, this is where the good news of the Lord Jesus was first believed. And you and I are the inheritors of a message that first took root here. But we can learn lessons for our own situation. This is the first preaching of the gospel to an entirely pagan audience, people that have no Jewish background. And so we think, well, that sounds a little bit like us, except our situation's slightly different because we're a post-Christian background. We're now speaking good news of Jesus to people who think they're too clever for it. These people had never heard of Jesus. But we're now speaking to people who think, oh, that's something that used to be believed, but we're too smart now. So there's things that we can find that are similar, but there's others that are a little different. Anyway, in Iconium, in the verse 7 verses, please keep it open, and I've got a, a sermon outline if you find that helpful to follow and jot things down. There's some familiar themes. The first thing is this, we see a bit of Paul's pattern. Wherever he went, if he could, he would start in the Jewish synagogue because he knew that there were people there who believed in God, they believed in the scriptures, they were waiting for the Messiah, so Paul would always go to the synagogue. We've seen previously, uh, I'll show you again, Jewish communities were scattered right across the, the, the world of the Mediterranean in those days. And so wherever Paul went, there was likely to be a Jewish community. Not always, but, but likely. They first to the synagogue and we read there that the, the preaching of the gospel was so effective that many Jews and many non-Jews believed. So Paul had success. People listened to the message and they believed it. But another of the great themes of the book of Acts is where there's success, there will always be opposition. And so he was, uh, he was faced with people there, unbelieving Jews they're called. They're people that didn't respond to the gospel message. They did not believe that the message that Paul preached was of their Messiah. They said, no, this is not something for us. But they weren't just content not to believe it, they wanted to poison the minds of the others. So that's what Luke, uh, in, in, in the book of Acts, tells us. They, they poisoned the mind, even of people that weren't Jews. Uh, there's a lesson there for us. Don't be surprised if when you tell others about Jesus, you are opposed. Don't be surprised, it will always be that way. The Christian life has never been easy and it's never been popular. Uh, I heard someone say once that Jesus' parable of the sower and the soils may have reflected, there were four soils and only one of them was good, that this preacher said maybe that reflects Jesus' own success rate. Maybe 75% of people rejected him, I don't know. But nonetheless, there's only one good soil out of the four. But um, we're told in Ephesians 6 that we're involved in a spiritual warfare um, Jesus himself taught that the way to life is a narrow way. So in Matthew 7 he says the, the, the way to, to destruction is broad and there are plenty of people on that road. He says the way to, to life is narrow and very few find it. Uh, the Christian life is actually hard because you've got to surrender. And the first thing we have to surrender is our will. And most of us are pretty good at getting what we want and preferring that. But the Christian life begins when we surrender and say, no, I'll do what you want, God. And that's the stumbling block for so many. It's a narrow road to life and few find it. And we need to keep that in mind. Um, anyway, even in spite of the opposition, another thing that comes across over and over again in the book of Acts is that the apostles, the bearers of the message, are bold. 
And so they're not deterred by opposition. So we find that just in the same way that Peter and John, after they'd been beaten, they kept on preaching, Paul does the same with Barnabas. They move on, they're bold. Then as well as that, we're told in in verse 3, that the Lord bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So the Lord is Jesus. Jesus demonstrates to anybody with eyes to see that this is authentic, this is real, because he allows Paul and Barnabas perhaps to to perform signs and wonders. They did miracles. We're not really given much detail there, but we're given a bit of detail in the next little section. Now, what's the purpose of signs and wonders? This is an ongoing area of debate. Clearly, in in the New Testament, signs and wonders weren't acts of magic. They weren't just powerful displays. They were always linked to ministry of the word. Uh, And so Hebrews chapter 2, that uh, Jared read out before, talks about God's great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord Jesus. And then it was attested to us by those who heard. So, in other words, the writer to the Hebrews is saying... We've heard from people that were taught by Jesus and now we're passing it on to you. But then he goes on and he says that God also bore witness or God testified to the reality of these things by signs and wonders and various miracles. So signs and wonders are linked to the ministry of the word to authenticate that the word is from God. John Calvin, the great uh, Swiss reformer, French reformer, he said uh, God never separates miracles from his word. So they're not just random acts of magic, they're to authenticate the word. In fact, Paul said that the miracles that he did authenticated him as an apostle. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, because in Corinth, the people in the church in Corinth had been persuaded by newcomers that Paul wasn't an apostle. And so if you read 2 Corinthians, in many places there, he has to say, I actually am an apostle. And you can trust the word that I'm bringing to you, uh, which I was taught by Jesus himself. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So the purpose of signs and wonders is to authenticate the message and to authenticate the message bearer. And that's that's what they're doing in the book of Acts. That's just a bit of a a sideline. We'll move on. In Iconium, the opposition turned deadly. And so despite the signs, which were undeniable, despite the things that had been done, these Jewish opponents came and they threatened to stone Paul and Barnabas. They came and divided the crowd, they issued threats, and so Paul and Barnabas decided now's not a good time to be in Iconium. And so they made what amounts to a tactical withdrawal, but they didn't stop preaching. And so they moved on. They had uh, opposition in Iconium, so they moved to Lystra about 18 miles to the south, uh, a good day's walk. Now that's what Lystra looks like today, nothing there but a hill. And underneath that is the city of Lystra, and it's just waiting for some archaeologist to come with a shovel and dig it up and then we'll know a bit more about Lystra. A lot of the Bible world has been excavated, and this is something that actually really interests me, and I think it's actually quite important. If you read the book of Acts, and I hope you do, you need a map out. Because Luke depends on you knowing where things are. So something like the ESV Study Bible has fantastic maps and you can see where everything is. But as well as that, when we see these names written in the book, even though some of them are a bit tricky to say, it reminds us that the gospel 
took root in real places with real people. We're not talking about make-believe. We're not talking about fairy stories. We are talking history. It's history that has been dug up and some of that history is waiting to be dug up, but it's history. And I want you to know that when you t- speak to people about the Lord Jesus, you're not talking fairy stories. You're, you're speaking true things that happened. Now, if somebody says to you, oh, it's such a long time ago, uh, how can we believe that? Well, there's a lot of answers to that question. But you see, the thing is, there are some things so important and some so special, they can only happen once. God could only become a human once. The Lord Jesus could only die once. So just because it happened a long time ago doesn't mean it's of no relevance because there are some things so vital they can only happen once. And this happened once a long time ago and it's been attested by eyewitnesses and it's been testified to by signs and wonders and we believe by faith that this is true and it's history and it really did happen. William Barclay points out in his commentary that the further that Paul and Barnabas went from civilization, so to speak, the more danger they put themselves in because the Romans kept a pretty tight rein on, on crime and, and banditry and those sorts of things. But in Lystra and in Derby, they were a fair way in the boondocks. And so it was much more physically dangerous for Paul and Barnabas in those places. Well, they've moved on. They've gone from Iconium and now they're in Lystra and there we do see an example of a sign and a wonder uh, at the hand and and through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. We find there in verses 8 to 10 that a, a man born lame believes and walks. Now have a look what it says. At Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. That's a lot of detail. So this man, you might say, is a hard case. Everybody in town knew him because chances are he's a beggar. But this is meant to remind us of the man that Peter and John healed back in Acts chapter 4. Remember them? They're real apostles. So what's going to happen when Paul, this apostle who wasn't one of the twelve, speaks to this man? Well, he listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. Now, this is a man that's never walked. He doesn't know how to stand up. But Paul saw that he believed. He had faith to be healed. And so whatever he did enabled him to stand up and he found that his ankles were strong. But not only that, he sprang up and began walking. Does that remind you of anything? It ought to. That's exactly what the lame man outside the temple did. He walked and he leapt and he praised God and everybody who'd seen him every day begging said... Well, that hasn't happened before, and nor has this. The reason that Luke's telling the story is he wants to show that Paul is no less of an apostle than Peter. He's gifted with the same miracle-working power as Peter had been. And so this man leaps to his feet and begins walking. But you'll notice from verse 11 there's a a disturbing reaction. The sign's undeniable. I met a man once, he came up to me on the train. I was sitting, I was the only person on the Druin station. I was on the way to Ridley College and I was reading some notes that I had to get read before the lecture that day. And he came up, the only other man on the station, he comes up and says, what are you doing, digger? And I said, I'm reading. 
I'm, stu- so I'm, I'm studying. He says, what are you studying? I said, theology. He said, oh, theology, I need to talk to you then. So he did, all the way to Flinders Street. <laughs> and so he says, I'm an atheist. I said, that's okay. And then he said, but I've had a miracle. I just don't believe. So he told me about how when he was 16, he was shot in the neck and the bullet went right round his throat inside the skin and didn't kill him. He said, I can show you the scar, and he did. He said, I've had a miracle, but I'm an atheist. Miracles don't convince everyone. Miracles have to be tied to ministry of the word. It's the word that convicts. So I spent an hour and a half trying to convict him. He was actually an interesting customer. He said, right, I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to listen to everything you want to tell me, and then I'm going to get you to shut up, and I'm going to reply. I said, fair deal. So we did. It was actually a really interesting encounter. Um, at the end of it, he said, this, I'm getting a bit off my notes here, sorry, but uh, at the end of it, as I was getting off, because I had to get off, he said, I admire your faith. I said, don't admire it, cry out for it. I don't want anybody to, you know, look, Jesus has, has woken my heart up and he's, reve- look, he's revealed himself as the, the true and living way. And anyone can come, but it, we've got to come by faith. And it starts with submitting to him. Anyway, the healing draws a crowd, as they sometimes do. And the people in the Lycaonian language give praise to Paul and Barnabas, but they think that they're talking about two of their own gods. So they said in verse 11, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now that's true, but it's not these two. That describes Jesus. Except it's one God who's come down to us in the likeness of a man, except that he, and he was a man. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So Zeus was the chief god. of The Greeks had many gods, the Romans had many gods. The Greeks and the Romans worshipped the same gods by different names. Did you know that? Right. Did you know how much of an influence that still has on our world? Um, we still have roman god names for the days of the week and things like that uh, and for the months of the year um january janus roman god uh we don't have a, a zeus day or anything like that but but zeus was the chief of the gods uh the romans called him jupiter after whom we name a planet hermes was zeus's messenger so he used to run errands for, for Zeus, which is why very often if you see paintings or sculptures of Hermes, he will have wings on his feet or on his helmet because he was the messenger. And so because Paul was doing the mess, he was bearing the message, they thought he's Hermes rather than being chief god. Maybe Barnabas was older, and, but Zeus was sort of known to sort of sit back and sort of be the strong, silent type. So Barnabas was Zeus... Paul was was Hermes, uh, or Mercury, as they say. Um, Now, there was an ancient legend, which it's very interesting that this took place in Lystra, because the Lystrans had this ancient legend that once upon a time, Zeus and Hermes came to town, and they came in disguise, so no one could recognise them. And they visited 1,000 homes and weren't welcomed. They visited the home of an old peasant couple and that were the only people that welcomed them. And so to punish the people of Lystra, Zeus and Hermes sent a flood to the town and everybody died, except for this dear old couple, Philemon and Borsus. 
Can you imagine with that background in Lycaonian legend what the people of Lystra are thinking now? If this is Zeus and this is Hermes, if we don't welcome them properly, we might be killed. That's probably going on in their minds here. And so in chapter 14, verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Now, would that have been any kind of a temptation to Paul and Barnabas? They've been threatened with stoning in Iconium and now the people, rather than wanting to stone them, want to worship them. It sure beats being stoned, doesn't it? But they won't have a bar of it. Because just like Peter, when people wanted to worship him, he says, oh no, I'm just a man. Now Paul and Barnabas didn't understand the Lyconian language, so Luke points out that they're, they're actually saying all these things in the local tongue, but Paul and Barnabas don't understand. But when it does come to their mind, when they worked out what's going on, verse 14, when the apostles and Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. Now, tearing your garments means we are in the presence of blasphemy. So Paul and Barnabas are disturbed about this. They don't want to let this happen any further. And just like Peter, when he said, no, don't worship me, but in contrast to Herod in chapter 12, when Herod, when the people heard Herod speaking and they said, this is the voice of a God, not a man, Herod accepted the praise and what happened? He was struck dead. So Paul and Barnabas know the ropes. They know that you can't do this. But the people there don't know that. So they tear their garments and Paul seizes the opportunity to set them straight. And so this is the first example of a sermon which is preached to a purely Gentile audience in the book of Acts. Now when Luke records the sermons, he doesn't tell us everything that was said. He gives us a representative chunk. And what you'd need to do to understand the full range of the gospel message is to read all of the eight sermons that are recorded in Acts. You put them all together and you get a really good picture of what the earliest people preached about the Lord Jesus. So there's a few notable omissions in this speech, but that doesn't mean that Paul didn't mention it at all. But it's the things that Luke highlights that are of interest. But effectively, Paul's message boiled down to this. You people worship gods you can see. He says they're vain gods, they're empty gods, they're purposeless gods because they're not gods at all. He says turn from the idols that you've made and worship instead the God who made everything, including you. That's the message that Paul preaches to them. Now notice that Jesus has borne witness to the truth of the message, the word, by signs. We've already seen that in verse 3. Now... Paul goes on and speaking to people that don't know about the Jewish God, he says, you already know a bit because nature bears witness. So signs bear witness and now nature bears witness. But the question is, will people pay attention to the witness? We've already seen that people haven't paid attention to the signs, but will they pay attention to what they're surrounded by every day? Because Paul says nature witnesses to God's kindness. He sends the rain, he sends harvest, he sends bountiful amounts of food and he helps you to have a happy time while you eat it. He says, you all know that. He says, that's the God that made you. Don't worship things that you've made. 
Now Paul expands on that idea in Romans chapter 1. He says, creation leaves everyone without excuse. Here's a tip for how to speak to your neighbours. They might think they're too clever for Jesus. But we can learn something from the way Paul addresses pagan people. By taking them to things that they do know and that they do believe and asking, well, how did this happen? Because creation's undeniable, we live in it. So how did it get here? We might think about that a bit more later on. But then the opposition interrupts. Whether they stopped him mid-sentence, we're not sure, but Jews from Antioch and Iconium turned up to persuade the crowds. And not only persuade the crowds, they, they got the crowds on side, they stoned Paul and they left him for dead. And so we read there that uh, they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But look what happens in verse 20. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Now there's, there's something quite wonderful happening in that verse and Luke doesn't expand on it. But if Paul looked to the crowd as though he was dead, what happened when the disciples surrounded him? There's two things that we need to notice. Notice that there's disciples. So there's disciples in Lystra. Up till then we've only been hearing about Paul and Barnabas. Their preaching must have convinced people to believe because there's disciples, not just one, but enough to be said in the plural. Now, one of those disciples may well have been Timothy because we read about him in chapter 16. Uh, if, you, if you flick forward, you'll see that Timothy was from Lystra. He may have become a believer there. But it may be that what happens in verse 20 is that these disciples stand and pray for Paul who is either close to death or perhaps even dead. And somehow he gets up and somehow he walks back into the city and somehow he has the strength to go on to Derby. And so that's the next location of the preaching. And Derby again is just a mound waiting for archaeologists to go through and dig it. So you can see how remote it was from the, the, the um, powerful cities and all that sort of thing. But, but Paul and Barnabas took the message there and they spoke with real boldness and with real honesty. Um, even though it was dangerous, they kept on preaching. And there were many disciples made in Derby. Uh, but then after preaching, Luke doesn't give us much information, but they returned to Lystra. What does that tell you? Paul was a gutsy guy. He went back to the scene of real conflict where his life had been at risk. And what did they do along the way? Well, verse 22 Everywhere they'd been and preached, they strengthened the souls of the disciples. They encouraged them to continue in the faith. We need that, don't we? That's why you come to church every week. I need encouragement to continue in the faith. Because I look at the world and think, boy, this is a hard world, this is a dirty world, this is a corrupt world. What's going on? I need encouragement to continue in the faith and so do you. And I'll tell you why we need encouragement, because so many quit so many give up and I've said it before and I'll say it again I trust I'll continue to say it one of the most difficult things about being a Christian is the longer you go in it the more you remember who have given up so my question for you today is what's keeping you in the faith what would it take for you to quit Paul went along encouraging people to continue in the faith and saying, this is the honest bit, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I've had people say to me, Steve, how can you be suffering this? You're a pastor. 
I don't think that gives you a get-out-of-jail card. I had somebody say to me once, oh, this is, this is of the devil, Steve. Uh, we're king's kids and the king only wants good things for his kids. Well, God wants what's best, not wants just what's good. And Paul knows and he tells his converts that you can expect trouble. If you follow Jesus, expect trouble. Now, Paul's not trying to massage the message. He's giving it to them straight because they need to know what they're letting themselves in for. It's through many tribulations that will enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said it. He says, in this world you will have tribulation. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 14, count the cost. So becoming a Christian is... Well, there's people in this room who know exactly what I'm talking about. It gets you into trouble with your family, doesn't it? There's, There's people in families here that think you're nuts for following Jesus. Or think that you're narrow-minded. Or think that you're harsh and critical and cutting because you believe things. But there's people at your workplace who think you're one of them. Um, following Jesus does it does cost. And it won't be easy. But Paul lets us know that. It's through many tribulations. But in those tribulations, Jesus is with us. And through those tribulations, we're being shaped. We're being refined. We're being made more and more like Jesus. It's part of God's purpose for us. So they move on from Derby. They go back to Lystra. They go to Iconium, to Antioch. They go back to where they've, they've hit the mainland. And then they, they take a boat back to Antioch where their mission started. And verse 26 tells us that the work that they've done is in fulfilment. It's been fulfilled by the grace of God. So they were commissioned by the Holy Spirit in Antioch, sent to the work... They've done the work and they come back to Antioch and they take a bit of a rest there. I got a text from a rude friend of mine a while ago. He says, how come you can have a holiday? He says, Paul never took holidays. Have a look at verse 28. They remained no little time with the disciples. Right, Paul did take holidays. He had a little break, right? Because we're just flesh and blood and God gives, God gives sleep to those he loves. Even Jesus rested. The work's been fulfilled by the grace of God. And, says Paul, in his report to the the church at Antioch, he tells them that God has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's significant. This is actually history-making stuff. You won't read this in history books at school or university, but this is is part of God's purpose for changing civilisation. The Gentiles believed. It went from just being a Jewish religion to being a Gentile one. Now in saying that, we're seeing here the fulfilment of Jesus' mandate to Paul. Because when, Paul was con- when Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to Ananias, go and tell Saul, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So everything that's happening is in fulfilment of that. So what lessons can we get out of all this? The first is this. Paul knows from experience that following Jesus is costly. So when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says to Timothy from Lystra, who'd probably seen him being stoned, but was probably one of those people who'd believed, he says to Timothy, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra? There they are. The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, 
Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So coming to Jesus is not a guarantee of a, a soft, cushy life. But coming to Jesus makes more sense than anything the world can offer. So I heartily recommend it. But it has eternal benefits, of course. And so there's a challenge for you and for me. Am I prepared to suffer for the gospel? Are you? Now, sometimes you'll tactically withdraw. Sometimes you'll pray for the third opportunity to talk to someone. Right? Uh, But if a person makes it absolutely clear they want nothing of it, keep praying. But, you know, just, just be cautious about how you go about it. But there's another lesson, and that's that we need to learn this, that the gospel both attracts people and it repels them. Now, I've met people who suggest that if you just get the right technique, everyone's going to believe. Well, that wasn't Jesus' experience and it wasn't Peter's or Paul's. The gospel attracts people and it repels them. So in verse 1, we see a great number believed. In verse 21, a large number of disciples were made. But then some opposed, even despite the signs and the evidence of creation. So there's division, there's a plot to stone them, and there's an actual stoning. The gospel's always believed and opposed. But I want to suggest this, that unbelief itself is a choice. So when people see the signs, and when they see the evidence of creation, they're left with a choice, and many choose not to believe. I had an interesting example of that some years ago. I was driving home, listening to the radio, and there was this fascinating conversation with a scientist. Now, this scientist, Ian Crawford, the Professor of Planetary Science and Astrobiology at the University of London, was in Melbourne, and he was interviewed on the ABC radio. And I went home and found the uh, the station, the, 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 the replay of it, and I transcribed part of the interview. And uh, this is what he said to the presenter, Lindy Burns, back in 2017. So he's a professor of astrobiology. Um, And he says, the more biology you learn, any life, even microorganisms, bacteria, are just so complicated, they're almost miraculous. They're so complicated, I actually think that they're probably quite difficult to get going. Now, what he's talking about, microorganisms and bacteria, and he says, they're miraculous let alone a human being. And he says, I think they're probably quite difficult to get going. Well, I disagree with them at that point. I'd say, no, they're impossible to get going. Because you'll never create one of these in a test tube, I don't think. I'm no scientist, so correct me if I'm wrong. But he went on because part of his job is to look for alien life. And so he says, I've now become less optimistic because biology looks so complicated. Clearly it's possible because we're here. But it does look really complicated to get a biology functioning and then to evolve that up to the level of creatures as complicated as ourselves. So he knows just how sophisticated and complex life is and he says it looks like it's a miracle. But is he a believer? No, he said he's not. So he's staring in the face of the evidence and refuses to believe. to tell you that things do bear thinking about and the message that Paul and Barnabas took to the people of Lystra and Derby is one of those things because we've all got to choose we've got to choose idols or Jesus now what's an idol it probably won't be a block of metal shaped into a sculpture figure looking like Zeus it probably won't be that for you 
But an idol is whatever you put in the place that only God should have. So I've heard it said by English preacher Rico Tice, he says an idol is when a good thing becomes a God thing. And it can be a simple thing, it could be a job, it could be a sport, it could be a hobby, it could be your children, it could be your husband, your wife. Any, any good thing that becomes a God thing becomes an idol. We've got to choose between idols and Jesus. We've got to choose to accept Jesus or reject him. Creation leaves us without excuse. A good question if you're ever talking to someone, and I've tried this, a good question is, if I could prove to you these things, if I could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, would you believe them? And the answer when I've tried is no. Which just goes to show that people do choose not to believe. It's sad, but it's a fact. The gospel always attracts and it repels. And so the challenge for each of us is to choose Jesus and to leave our idols and persevere where we keep choosing Jesus day by day, even if it means suffering for him. So let's pray. Uh, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for these words and these challenges from your word. We thank you for people like Paul and Barnabas who sacrificed security and luxury to, to move around with the good news of Jesus even at great personal cost. We pray that you would help us to pay the price of following Jesus, uh, even if it costs us rejection, uh, even if it costs us tribulation. Help us not to be surprised by, by these things, but to rely on you even more. But we thank you again that you sent your son uh, who died for us and, and who lives for us and one, one day will return to establish your eternal kingdom. So please help us live, to live for him every day that you give us breath. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.